my friends, uh, we are, today we're going to be studying the book of, am I on by the way? We're going to be studying the book of the Second Chronicles, the entire book. So uh, settle in, that uh, should be a good time. Now, just a couple of chapters we're going to be looking at today. Um, we go before the Lord, we'll pray uh, before we get started. One of the pr- first things I'm going to pray, half of you put your head down and shut your eyes, I'm sorry. Um, um, we're going to pray for uh, Mike Rafferty. Mike's a fellow from our church here. Uh, mid-30s, who was in an accident with work on um, earlier in the week, uh, and he got injured at work. He works construction, he got injured at work, he went into the hospital, um, broke his leg, broke his kneecap, uh, and had to go into a, a somewhat of an emergency surgery as well uh, on Thursday or so, um, so for, to relieve swelling in his, in his foot area, ankle area. So let's pray for him. Uh, we prayed for Roger Weiss last a few weeks ago. Roger had a couple of strokes. We prayed for him. He was back this morning for service, so that's good news. Uh, but anyway, let's pray. Father, we're thankful so much, for, Father, just for being able to see uh, Roger this morning, Lord, seeing him come in on that walker and uh, gathering again with the saints, happy to be up and about. And, uh, Lord, we're just grateful uh, for the way in which uh, you protected him, Lord, you brought him uh, back to gather with us and Father, we know there's still a little bit of uncertainty as to what caused what and why and how to avoid that. And uh, so, Lord, we ask you to continue to provide wisdom to those that are caring for him, doctors and others that are caring for him. Uh, But, Lord, we're just rejoicing uh, in his presence with us today. And, Father, today we think of our brother, uh, Mike, who's not able to be with us. Lord, and, uh, Father, we want to just begin by thanking you for preserving his life. Certainly could have lost it. Not just him, but everyone else that was uh, there at the home and other things, Lord. But you were uh, gracious and merciful, Lord, uh, that he's here with us, Lord. We thank you for even the extent of the injury. Lord, easily could have lost an entire leg. And yet, Lord, uh, just some broken bones. And Father, we're thankful for the emergency surgery. We're thankful for the, uh, those tubes that were inserted to relieve the swelling. And Father, we're asking... Lord, that you would uh, just preserve him from any long-term damage as a result of this injury. Father, I'm just so grateful for the way uh, in which you're still working on his heart. Lord, that he's still open to you and hearing from you and responding to your work in his life and desiring and wanting to keep trusting you. Lord, I pray that, Lord, even today, kind of with the setback of the emergency surgery, that in his heart there would just be a great confidence, really born of you, Lord, in you. So, Father, please bless him. Please bring about a a complete and a total healing. Lord, bring good from this circumstance that your name would be glorified and bless our brother even as he's absent from us this morning. And so, Father, for us, we ask, Lord, that we would have hearts that are prepared to receive. Father, we see that example in the, the parable there of the sower and the seed. Lord, we know that the exact same seed was cast upon four different soils, And that depending on the condition of the soil determined whether or not the seed would bear fruit. And Father, we know that the soil represents the human heart. And so, Lord, this morning we come and we ask that our hearts would be prepared to receive from you. Father, in those areas in which we're challenged this morning, rather than responding in sort of that natural defensive way of putting up the walls and the making of excuses, Lord, Lord, as we are exposed by the brightness of your light, Lord, we ask that our hearts would be open to receive and to acknowledge and to to turn, really. So, Father, do a great work within our hearts. Prepare us to receive your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn to 1 Chronicles, excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 8. Now, when you came in, you may have noticed on the screen it said that we were going to be studying 2 Chronicles chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. One of the things that I noticed as I was preparing the or presenting the message in the previous service was uh, we would have been here till 2 o'clock or so uh, if we did both chapters. And so uh, we're going to uh, only do chapter 8 today as much as I enjoy being with you. Um, I have somewhere to be this afternoon uh, to see my son play soccer, so we can't stay till two. Uh, but anyway, that being said, we're going to look at chapter eight today. Chapter, the book of Second Chronicles, the purpose of the book was the author, a man by the name of Ezra, as we've said. And again, if I've said this already, I apologize if you're like, yeah, we heard that. You say it every week. But some people are coming in and coming out. So 
The purpose of the book is to reestablish the nation following a period of 70 years of captivity in a foreign land. So the people are returning to the nation, and there's this idea of who are we, what are we, what's going on here. Ezra is going to explain those things. This is our heritage. This is where we have come from. One of the aspects of, of the heritage that they want to point to is the kings and the rulers and the leaders. And so in the book of First Chronicles, primarily much of it is building up toward and following the first king of Israel, second king of Israel, a man by the name of King David. This book begins, there's some 36 chapters in the book of Second Chronicles, this book begins by looking at the first nine chapters, a man by the name of Solomon. So you have King David, King David's son is Solomon. David dies, Solomon takes over and reigns in his place. And so, as we've looked so far at the first seven chapters of the book of Second Chronicles, what we have considered was two of the greatest accomplishments that Solomon enjoyed in the 40 years that he served as the uh, king of the nation. And those two accomplishments that uh, were given to us, covered in the first seven chapters, are that he had the temple built, the same temple that his father wanted to build, David wanted to build, but he was unable to. Solomon saw that completed, and he instituted the liturgical worship that the Jews enjoyed at that temple for hundreds of years. Those were his two greatest accomplishments. The building of the temple, ultimately from the plans that Moses had given them, and then the institution of this liturgical worship that David had given to his son Solomon. He put those things. And the first seven chapters talks about those accomplishments, first 20 years of his uh, administration. The next chapter, next two chapters really, deal with all the other accomplishments of Solomon's administration. And so as we begin looking at verses 1 and 2, and, and basically, if, I don't know how your Bible is set up, but if you, you basically have paragraphs or sections of the chapter, each paragraph, each section is dealing with a different area of an accomplishment in Solomon's uh, administration. So the, let's read the first one here. It begins, this is going to have to do with what today we might call an urban development plan. Notice what it says. It says, now at the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, Solomon rebuilt the cities that Hiram had given to him, and he settled, settled the people of Israel in them. Now, we're not going to get to it today, but in chapter 9, verse 30, it tells us that Solomon reigned for a period of 40 years. We know that the first 20 years of his administration was devoted to the temple and to his own palace. We've read that before, and we've seen that already. So the first 20 years, he's dealing with things He's dealing with things that are inside the city of Jerusalem. He's building up the capital city of the nation. The second 20 years, he's dealing with the nation and the issues that are outside of Jerusalem. And the first one that we have listed here, again, is in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, has to do with the development of urban centers or cities. So again, if you look at verses 1 and 2, it, it speaks of there, Solomon rebuilt the cities that Hiram had given to him. Now, if you were with us earlier on in our study of this book, you know you may, may recall that Hiram was the king of Tyre. Tyre is a, a city, a nation, if you will, that is located today north of Israel in what is called Lebanon. You've heard that on the news or whatever. Just off of the coast of Lebanon was the city and the kingdom of Tyre. And this is where Hiram come, comes from. Hiram was a good friend of David. He was an ally, but he was also a good friend. He seems to not be as friendly with Solomon, but he's an ally with Solomon. So that relationship, that political alliance continues on past David's life and administration and into the next kingdom here with Solomon as well. And so here we have record that Hiram had given Solomon these cities and that Solomon then goes and he rebuilds or he builds these particular cities. Now if you're familiar with the parallel passages, and again remember the book of First and Second Chronicles, many of the stories that are found in those two books are also found in the book of 2 Samuel and the book of 1 Kings. And, you know, you're kind of reading, you're like, why is this in here twice? And again, as I mentioned previously, the concept or the idea is one was written from the perspective of the kings of Judah, that's the books of Chronicles, and the other was written from the perspective of the kings of Israel, and that's the book of 1 Kings, uh, and so on. But if you read the parallel passage that is found there in 1 Kings chapter 9, you come across what is an apparent contradiction. Because here what we read is that it says that Hiram gave to Solomon a group of cities. But look at 1 Kings chapter 9.10. It says, Now at the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, 
that King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. So the one is saying Hiram gave cities. The other is saying that Solomon gave cities. But let me just keep reading the passage here. It says, Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. And so he said, What kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. Now, the word Kabul means, or could be translated, good for nothing. So Hiram wasn't too impressed with Solomon's gift. Essentially, he's saying something like, hey, what's up with this gift you give me? You give me your junk? I don't want your junk. Take it back you know, with you. So 1 Kings says that Solomon gave Hiram the city. 2 Chronicles says Hiram gave Solomon the cities. Which one is it? Well, we don't know for, um, necessarily, but... Uh, a way that we might be able to interpret this apparent discrepancy, one, could be we're talking about different cities altogether. So that could be one thing. But another way that we might be able to interpret it, seems a reasonable explanation to me, is that Solomon gave the city to, to Hiram. Hiram looks at it and was like, I don't want this. You, know, you take it, I don't want it back. And he gives it back to Solomon, and then Solomon says, all right, fine. And then Solomon goes and rebuilds those particular cities. And that would sort of deal with the idea that Solomon gave it, Hiram gave it, who gave it, who cares? I guess you might say as well. Uh, whatever the scenario is, the chronicler's point is this, to draw attention to this program of urban development that Solomon undertook during his reign. Okay, So Solomon here uh, is rebuilding these cities, 20 cities. The general idea of building a city in that day, the first thing you would have to do is find a source of water. Very important, obviously. The second thing, you would build a wall around that. So it might be a hewn-out cistern. A cistern is something that can collect water and and you would build a very large hewn-out cistern. We see some of them when we go on our trips to Israel. The other might be you'd find a brook of some sorts or uh, a river of some sorts and build a city sort of around that. But you needed to have that source of water, and then you would build the wall around that as your uh, system of security. After those two things are done, then you can develop the inside of the city, and you can build the buildings and, and the roads and all that other stuff that would come with it. So Solomon here, these 20 cities, urban development. Continuing on, look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says that Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and he took it. This is the only reference we have to a war during the reign and the administration of King Solomon. We read a lot of examples of it during David's reign, but not so during Solomon's reign. Only record we have of a battle during his reign. Now as far as Hamath Zobah is concerned, in chapter 7 of the same book, in verse 8 of the chapter, it says at that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great congregation from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. So we're talking about the same place, and notice it's referred to as the entrance of Hamath. Okay? Uh, just contextually, just so you understand this, uh, the, the reason for those words there, from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, they're trying to define the parameters of the nation of Israel. So we might say from sea to shining sea, or something like that, or perhaps sing it. Uh, sea to shining sea, you know, the parameters from this ocean to that ocean. For them, from the entrance of Hamath was kind of the northernmost border, and then all the way down the bottom, the Brook of Egypt. Not the Nile River, but the Brook of Egypt would be the southern border. And so they're, they're defining the parameters of the nation there, defining the parameters of the nation. Notice, though, in 2 Kings chapter 14, it speaks of a fellow by the name of Jeroboam. Jeroboam replaced King Solomon. And notice what it reads there. It says he, that's Jeroboam, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord God of Israel. So the point that I, I bring this up, and there's a number of examples where the entrance of Hamath or Hamath itself comes up in the scripture. The reason why I bring it up in the context of what we're looking at now is because it becomes pretty clear that it was a disputed city. It was sort of a border town, which this generation belongs to these people, but that generation belongs to those, and it's sort of going back and forth in, in who is controlling it. And it seems that what is occurring here in our passage is that Solomon now is restoring the land of this Hamath Zobah. He's restoring it back to Israel after a period of where it had switched hands. That's what seems to be going on here. Anyway, that's Hamath Zobah. Look at verse 4 and following. In verse 4 and following, we're going to read about a place called Tadmor, as well as a bunch of storage cities, and then also this upper and lower Beth Haran. I'll read the verses. It says, And Solomon built Tadmor in the wilderness, and all the store cities that he built in Hamath. He also built upper Beth Haran and lower Beth Haran, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, 
and Balaf, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and all the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. So specifically, we learn of a few. Tadmor. Tadmor, historically, they know, whether you're reading the Bible or not, outside of the Bible, evidence uh, is presented for us, that Tadmor was sort of a trade center on a key route that connected Damascus, which is north of Israel, Syria area, to the Euphrates River. And it became this key sort of city that everybody had to pass through. Scripture tells us here that Solomon was instrumental in building that particular city. It also speaks of the storage cities, which, obviously, as the name implies, was a, a place where supplies were stored. The supplies would be things like food and grain. The supplies would be the horses and the stables that were developed for them. These things that you kind of um, have introduction to in this particular passage. He builds up all of those cities. And then he also builds up what is called Upper and Lower Beth Haran. And we have a map, I believe, here of this. Let me just sneak over here. This area right here, this would be where Jerusalem is. And so you can see sort of where Upper and Lower Beth Haran is. If you notice on the map, you see how it's sort of brownish or yellowish here? and then it transitions to more of a green. That brownish area would be very mountainy, very rocky, and then as you begin to transition into the green area, it's very lush, it's very fertile, uh, and things like that. And so he begins to move toward that more fertile territory and developing that agriculture uh, and the like. And so upper and lower Beth Haran. Now, as we move on to verse 7, to accomplish all this, building all these cities, imagine building a city today, how many employees, how many workers that you would need. Uh, imagine back then when you're using sort of a hammer and banging on rocks and, uh, and that sort of thing. And so uh, you need a lot of workers. And so look at verse 7. It says, Now all the people who were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of Israel from their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel had not destroyed, these Solomon drafted as forced labor. And so they are to this day. So mention is made of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Sometimes in the scripture, those individual people groups are all lumped together, and they're referred to simply as the Canaanites. When the children of Israel moved into what would eventually become known as Israel, it was an area of land that was promised to them by God. It was specifically promised to Abraham, and that's why we refer to it as the promised land. Well, prior to it taking the name of Israel, the area of land was called Canaan. And so these Canaanites, made up of these smaller people groups, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Mosquitoites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just seeing if you're listening with me, all these other people groups here. When Israel came in, when the Israelites came in and took over the land, the idea was, look, there's a new sheriff in town. This is how it's going to be, and this is what we're going to do. Here's your choices. You can leave, or we'll kill you. You know, that sort of a thing. And so... Some of the people decided, well, we don't really want to leave, but look, we're not fighting. You're in charge. We'll do whatever it is you tell us to do. And so they did, and they became forced laborers in the building of all of these cities. Verses 9 and 10, additionally, Solomon employed Israelites that would serve in the military as well. And so you can see there, it says that these folks were soldiers and officers. They were commanders of the chariots, and they were horsemen. And then it goes on and says, and these were the chief officers of King Solomon, 250 who exercised authority over the people. So this ambitious plan uh, toward urban development, I guess you might say, during the second half of Solomon's administration. Look again at verse 6. Whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, uh, in Lebanon and so on, that he did build. And so that's one of his great accomplishments. Very little, five, six verses spent on it, ten verses maybe spent on it. And it certainly pales in comparison to the building of the temple and the worship of uh, the Lord Jehovah, but it's significant nonetheless. And so it's mentioned here as one of the accomplishments of Solomon. Now let's move on to verse 11, because we're going to transition from urban development, and we're going to transition to the idea of the religious legacy that Solomon left upon the kingdom. And again, remember the purpose of this book is to point out the accomplishments of King David and Solomon. Not every story of the lives of King David and Solomon are shared. And in fact, many of the negative events of their lives in the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles are omitted for us. We would have no idea if they weren't told in the other books, uh, 1 Kings, Samuel, and so on. So many of those events are uh, omitted. 
The only reason some of the negative events are listed in First and Second Chronicles are if they have some sort of a bearing on some greater accomplishment a little bit later on. So you may recall in First Chronicles chapter 21, we learned that David insisted on taking a census of the people. Again and again, people were telling him, not a good idea, don't do this, don't sin in this way and doing this sort of thing. But David insisted, I'm taking a census. And it was a great judgment that came upon the nation of Israel as a result of that particular census. That story is told for us in the book of Second, or First Chronicles. And you might say, well, why? That's a failure. Why would you put that in there if you're only going to put his accomplishments? Because the result of that mistake, that sin in his life, was the purchasing of the threshing floor of Ornon. And it's on the threshing floor of Ornon that the judgment was stopped, and it's in that very place that the temple was built. And the author of the book had to talk about the temple. How do you get that property of land? When did that all come about? So you had to include information about David's decision to take the census. That's the only reason why that failure is there, is to talk about some more significant accomplishment down the line. And so beginning in verse 11, we are reading of one of the negatives, it's mentioned, of Solomon's life. And so we'll start there, and it says, Now Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not live in the house of David, king of Israel, for the places to which the ark of the Lord have come are holy. And it continues, and it says, And Solomon offered up burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord that he had built before the vestibule, as the duty of each day required, offering according to the commandment of Moses, for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the three annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. According to the ruling of David his father, he appointed the division of the priests for their service and the Levites for their offices of praise and ministry before the priest, as the duty of each day required and the gatekeepers in their divisions at each gate. For so David the man of God had commanded. And they did not turn aside from what the king had commanded the priests and Levites concerning any matter and concerning the treasuries. Thus was accomplished all the work of Solomon from the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid until it was finished, so the house of the Lord was completed. So verse 11. Verse 11 speaks of Solomon's marriage to the daughter of Pharaoh. If you're familiar with the life of Solomon, then you know, you already know, that Solomon was married to over 700 women. And the passage also, scripture also says that in addition to those 700 marriages, that he also took an additional 300 concubines, essentially wives as well. So he marries himself to a thousand different women. One of those women is mentioned here. Excuse me. It's mentioned here, and it's the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, nothing is said about this positive or negative in this passage. It just simply states the facts, ma'am, as that fellow did from that TV show. Uh, oh, I forget who. Who? Dragnet, there you go. Who's the fella? Friday, Joe Friday, there you go. So it just simply says the facts. One of the things that Solomon began to undertake was the idea of marriages for political expediency, alliances through marriages. It was a very common practice around the world at that time, but it was not something that the nation of Israel was supposed to do. But Solomon did it. And so here we have an example where Solomon marries the king's daughter, the pharaoh's daughter, from Egypt. And he brings her to his kingdom. The general idea is this, you know, it's pretty hard for a rival king to come and attack the nation where his little girl is the queen. And so he makes 700, 1,000 political alliances, uh, it seems here. And again, nothing is said positive or negative about it in this particular place. Because that's not the chronicler's point. He's not kind of going down this track to point out this mistake that Solomon made in his life. Again, his point of verses, I guess, 11 through 16, it's moving away from urban development, and it's to talk about Solomon's religious legacy. You see, one of Solomon's greatest accomplishments was that he got the temple up and running, and he instituted this liturgical practice of worship that his father David had received from the Lord. And so the reason why it's mentioned in that one verse that he married this foreign woman with these foreign gods is so that it can get to the second half of that sentence where it says that, but he did not bring her into his house and he put her in her own house and that sort of thing. Because he's trying to establish that despite the fact that he went down this path, that he continued to make sure that the temple worship was kept holy. 
So silence on Solomon's marriage should not be construed as acceptance. Deuteronomy 17.17 is very clear on how Solomon failed here. 17.17 says, Neither shall he... This is a passage, by the way, it's not some like vague passage, maybe it applies to me, I'm not sure. It says, the day is going to come when you're going to get a king, and when you do, he shall not, notice, accumulate or multiply wise for himself, lest his heart be turned away. I would say a thousand wives is certainly multiplication. All right? And he is accumulating a lot of women there. It also says in Deuteronomy 7, a few chapters earlier, it says in Deuteronomy 7, in addition to not accumulating wives, that they were not to intermarry with foreign women as well. When the Lord your God delivers over to you, you shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Very important, verse 4 of chapter 7, because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. You see, the reason for both of these commands not to to intermarry with women that are worshiping other gods or men that are worshiping other gods and not to accumulate their wives. In both instances, the reasons for that command is because God knows that their hearts would be turned away and they would begin to go down some path. Now, these instructions, this is not a sense of racism that's coming through here. This isn't like, God, I only like Jewish people and nobody else kind of thing. God has a clear plan in the Scripture for how non-Jews can come to the faith as well. They would be called in the scripture proselytes. And the procedure is very clear of how a person can become a proselyte if they were interested in the faith, the Jewish faith that is being presented to them. But the scripture is very clear. You don't marry them first and then hope they convert later on, but that you bring them into the faith and then when they have adopted that faith for themselves, then you can go ahead and marry those proselytes. And we read the book, for instance, of Ruth and the story of Boaz, uh, some of our favorite stories in the scripture where Ruth is a foreign woman, a Moabite woman, who becomes a proselyte, comes to faith. And she is even in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And so it's not so much that it's, we're anti those folks or whatever it may be, but the concept is God knows that the heart has a tendency to go astray. And he's protecting his people. And if you look at the circumstance here, it's almost as if you can read into this and you can see in the passage here, Solomon knows this is a bad idea. Some of it, you know, well, it makes a lot of sense politically. I'll have this alliance. Egypt's a big thing. It's right on my southern border. They won't attack us anymore. Logically, this all makes sense. But there's, a, there's an idea here that's coming across where he knows I shouldn't be doing this. And that, I read that in this idea of he won't bring her into his house. Now, remember, in his house, while his house was being built, his house there was the city of David. It's in that city of David. Probably not the same palace that David had, but it's in that city of David. And it's in that little walled-in city that David had brought the Ark of the Covenant. So just out in the backyard there, that's where the Ark of the Covenant uh, sat under that tent. This is a holy place. I can't bring a foreign woman with her foreign gods and her foreign worship into this holy place. And so Solomon comes up with a plan, and he puts her outside of the city. It's going to become a very, very dangerous plan of his. He's rebelling. He's bringing her into his life. And what I'm noticing here is it's almost as if in Solomon's mind, he says, you know what, I know this is just on that edge. I know this probably isn't right for me to do. You know what, but if I manage it carefully enough, if I pay a little bit of extra attention to this particular thing, if I'm really careful with this, then I can manage any potential consequences of this sin. I'll bring her into my life, I'll marry her, disobeying God, but you know what, I'll keep her over there and I'll keep an eye on her and I'll make sure everything is okay. He would maintain his control over this little act of rebellion, and he would prevent any potential consequences that might come his way, or so we thought. Just outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's up on a a hill, a mountain, I guess you might say, a hill, uh, and then there's sort of this valley, and on the other side is where the Mount of Olives is. So the Mount of Olives might be here, Jerusalem is here. Just over in this area, there's a high series of hills and mountains that the Jews today, in English translated, they call it the Mount of Scandal. And the reason why they call it the Mount of Scandal is because that's where Solomon is believed to have built houses for all of his wives. And not just houses, but temples for all of his wives' false gods. And it's in those places that Solomon, the king of Israel, the man who introduced, if you will, temple worship to the people of Israel. 
the fellow who on the day they dedicated the temple fell down on his knees in front of hundreds of thousands of people and worshiped the Lord and exhorted the people to worship the Lord. That mount of scandal is the place that he himself went and worshiped these false gods. You see, he thought he could control his sin. He thought with a little bit of care he could manage the consequences of his sin. But even Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, the scripture says, his heart was led astray. And he began to worship these false and foreign gods. You know, I, I found in my life over my years, I've been walking the Lord about 25 years now, I found in my life that I have a tendency to do that with sin as well. And sort of, there's certain things, yeah, I ain't going near that. That's dangerous. And I stay away from that. But then there's other things that I think I can control. And I think I can manage. And, I'll, you know, I'll be all right with this. I'll just sort of let it live near. I won't fully embrace it. I'll watch it. I'll keep my eye on it. I got it under control. And then we begin to rationalize, me and perhaps you as well, begin to rationalize. rationalize. We say, you know what? I, I know I shouldn't be watching this, but when it gets really bad, I'll turn it off at that point. Or maybe we say something like, you know what? I know I shouldn't go to that particular place. I know what that place, what effect that has on who I am and what's going on in my heart. But you know, I'll just be careful not to do this or that. Some of us, it has nothing really to do with actions. It's just a matter of what's going on inside. And so how many of us have said, you know what? I know there's a little bit of bitterness going on in there, in my heart, a little bit of unforgiveness. And I know I should put that away because I know that it can have the effect of gaining my entire heart and enslaving me to it. But I'll just sort of let it hang around in there a little bit. I'll keep an eye on it. I'll make sure it doesn't get out of hand. You know, if you think about sin personified for a moment. All right? So try to picture a guy coming to your door and his name is sin. The problem with sin is that he's not satisfied with just a little. And so you, the idea is, well, here, take this and now go away. Well, he's not going to go away. And you give him a little, he's going to want more. It always wants more. I remember reading to my, my children when they were young, particularly my daughter Hopi, the book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Anybody read that book? I can't tell you how many times I've read that book. Uh, if you give a mouse a cookie. And the idea, I don't have to explain the book to you here, is but once sin gets its foot in your door, it will seek to be the master of your home. It happens again and again. We see it in the scripture. And many of us, we could call attention to people that we know in our lives, people that have influenced in our lives, people that we look to and say, man, there's a godly man, a godly woman, but they gave in to a little bit of sin here and a little bit of sin there. And the next thing you know, it enslaved them. And it took them down. The Apostle Paul, he instructed believers. This is in the New Testament. It's in the book of Romans. And he said, make no provision for the flesh. Now the term flesh there is used, and the term is used to describe our sinful nature. That aspect of who we are. So I'm a follower of Christ. I've been a follower of Christ seriously, I guess, uh, first eight months or so, I was sort of like, yeah, okay, whatever. But after that first year or so, then I was really like, all right, Lord, where are you going? I want to go with you. So I've been a follower of the Lord for 20-some years, 24 years or so, and I love the Lord. But despite that, despite that there's an aspect of me that really wants to walk with him and know him and, and deal with areas of sin in my life, there's another aspect of who I am that shocks me, that surprises me all the time, that says, you know what, do this and go down that path and do these particular things it's a it's a part of myself that is prone towards sin and paul's instructions to us to the romans when he says make no provision for the flesh his instructions are going back to the door analogy is don't open the door the bell may ring you know what don't go check and see who's there the guy may knock and knock and knock don't crack the door to peek out because when you do he's going to get a foot in and if it gets a foot in, soon enough the whole body is going to be in. So if he's knocking and knocking and knocking, then go put your headphones on and go to another part of the house so you can't hear the knocking. Don't open the door, he says. Make no provision for the flesh. A little bit uh, in a different book, Paul's writing to the believers in Galatia, in the book of Galatians, and he addresses how we are to treat our sinful nature. And it's certainly not put it on a hill just outside of your home. The way we're to treat our sinful natures, he says, but I say unto you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And then notice these words. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You don't put it on a hill. You don't crack the door. You make no provision for it. Or to use this example here, you crucify it, you kill it. If only Solomon had realized that righteousness and sin were at war with one another. Many of you are familiar with Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a great man of God, loved the Lord. Chuck Colson died this last year. I read a number of his books. I love them, uh, his books. Chuck Colson used to work for uh, Richard Nixon during the era of the Watergate scandal. Chuck Colson was known as the hatchet man. It was his job to go in and to destroy, not kill, but to destroy the political opponents of Richard Nixon. And Chuck Colson, he had involvement in the Watergate scandal, which was ultimately to destroy the political opponents of the president. Chuck Colson eventually spent uh, about a year or so in jail for his involvement in that particular scandal. And just before he went into jail, because it takes a process and so on, but just before he went into jail, Chuck Colson gave his life to Christ. And he became, just as his autobiography says, he became a born-again, that's the name of the book, believer uh, in Jesus. Nobody believed him. They thought it was one of those like death row conversion sort of things, and nobody believed him. But it was while he was in prison during that 10 months, and he, and he tells a story that he could have taken all sorts of plea bargains and sort of blamed it on other people and, and gotten away with it because they didn't really care about him. They wanted the higher-ups. And he said his, his conviction was, you know what, I need to answer for what I did. And so he went to jail. But it was during that year or so in jail that God burdened his heart for prisoners and their families and all of those that are affected by having to spend time in jail. And so he formed Prison Fellowship, probably the greatest prison ministry in the world today. He formed that ministry, and it continues on even after his death. Well, Chuck Colson wrote a book. It's called Kingdoms in Conflict. I don't think it's in uh, production anymore, but you could probably pick one up used or something like that. It's a great book, pretty thick book, Kingdoms in Conflict. The whole premise of the book, the whole idea of the book is this, that every one of us lives with two kingdoms inside of us, two kingdoms that are fighting with one another, righteousness and sin. And in order for us to win that battle, the decisions that we need to make, if only Solomon had read that book, if only Solomon had applied this idea that, you know what, I can't play with sin. I can't make any provision for sin because eventually sin will win out. You remember in Second Chronicles 7 that God promised Solomon that he would bless him as long as he continued to walk before him as David his father did. But then that same promise continues on and in verse 19, God continues and he says, but if you turn aside and you forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you, and you go and serve and worship other gods, then these are the consequences. And you can read the context of the passage there for the consequences that are given. How much do you want to bet in that little conversation with the Lord that Solomon either thought or actually did stop the Lord? And he said, what? God, I would never go serve other gods. Didn't you just see me? I was up there on the altar. I, I fell down on the platform. I was worshiping. I exhorted hundreds of thousands of people that had gathered. I spent all of this money. I spent all of this time. I built this temple. God, you don't need to tell me. I will never go worship and serve some other God. But he did. Most of us, many of us in this room today, we could make a declarative statement, I would never. I would never go down that path. I would never do that thing. I would never. We could say that, and with all of our heart, and in sincerity, sincerity, we would believe it. But that doesn't guarantee that five years from now, or ten years from now, or does it even matter if it's 70 years from now, if the end result is that we walk away from the Lord, it's not guaranteed by what happens here today. The end result is guaranteed by our daily decisions. And what it is that we do with sin when it comes crouching at our door, seeking to devour, when it speaks there of the devil in the New Testament book, I believe, of 1 Peter. So Solomon perhaps would have said, God, I would never go and serve other gods. But he did. Slowly, 
gradually, a little compromise here, a little compromise over there, and suddenly he found himself wandered down, that he'd wandered down some path, and I'm sure he's wondering, how did I ever end up here? Falling down before these foreign gods. Now, it's important that a distinction is made here. When I'm talking about sin, in this instance, this context of things, I'm not talking about you're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, and you, you give them one. Hey, what's the matter with you, you dummy? You know, or something like that. I'm not talking about those instances. I'm not talking about you, you, know, you drop something and, and a curse comes out or something like that, and immediately you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, what am I doing? And, and you know, the, sort of there's that immediate repentance for that particular thing or the immediate realization. It just sort of came and it just sort of happened. That's our sinful nature. That's what Paul, again, describes in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't. You know, who, what kind of a person am I? He would say. What I'm talking about is those willful decisions towards sin. Those times where you have time to think about it. You have time to do the wedding planning. You know, you're out with your wife looking at dresses, all, or your fiancé looking. You have all the time in the world to make that particular decision. And all of the time... The, the spirit, if you will, is saying, I don't think I like this. Not a good idea, the direction that you're going. But you rebel anyway. And you compromise. It, that's the type of sin that I'm referring to. And the scripture is clear. Don't compromise with that sort of rebellion. And don't make the mistake of thinking that you can manage it. I'll keep an eye on it. It'll be okay. Just a little is fine. Because the idea is you crack that door a little, and sin steps in, and soon sin becomes the master This is what G. Campbell Morgan said in his book, Life Applications from Every Chapter of the Bible. I'd encourage you to get it. If you're doing your daily Bible reading, sometimes you read a chapter and you're like, I could have probably done without that chapter. You know, you might think, I didn't get anything out of it. This book is a fantastic resource to just sort of prime that pump a little bit of what God might want to say to you through every chapter of the Bible. But anyway, he says this. He says, to tolerate wrong in any degree is ultimately to become its slave. To build a house for Pharaoh's daughter outside the holy city is to open the gates of the city sooner or later to Pharaoh's gods. Sin is deceptive. And we can think we're its master when in reality we're the ones that end up enslaved. Let me make just one final point about sin and about compromise. As the context of this particular passage points out, Solomon's decision to disobey and to take this foreign wife, in the immediate, things continued just as they had before. Look at verse 12. It says that burnt offerings continued to be offered. If you look at verse 13, it says that the annual feast continued to occur. If you look at verse 14, it says that the division of the priests, they continue to come and they gather And the gatekeepers and the worship leaders, the Levites, all the others, they come and they do what they're supposed to do. Everything continued on as it had before. Solomon made this decision against his better judgment. He married this woman anyway. He thought he could manage it and control it. And hey, look around. Everything's going on like it was before. Maybe I got away with it. Maybe God doesn't really care as much as Moses seemed to indicate that he would care about this particular thing. You know, sometimes perhaps we're tempted to think similarly. That because no immediate repercussions occurred, that I guess it's not really sin at all. We need to be careful with that sort of thinking because just because the repercussions are not immediate, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to come. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This decision that Solomon makes to take a foreign wife with her foreign gods, it planted a seed on that day. And that seed went down into the soil of Solomon's heart, which eventually grew to be a plant of personal idolatry that Solomon began to engage in in practice. And maybe even more significantly, I'm not sure if you can be more significant than that, but maybe even more significant than it just being sort of this personal area of sin in Solomon's life, it eventually grew, and it wasn't just a plant, but it grew into a whole forest. And the entire nation of Israel was overcome with idolatry and false worship. Again, remember the words, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. 
Moses' words to the Israelites, I think, should be burned in all of our hearts. And it says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure of this, your sin will find you out. So just because we don't see the immediate consequences of our sin should not lead us down this path of conclusion, concluding that I got away with it or God doesn't care anymore. It all works itself out. And this sin of idolatry is ultimately what destroyed the nation of Israel and led them into a period of captivity, the Babylonian captivity. And now finally, verses 17 and 18 of the chapter. The last accomplishment that's sort of listed here. We've looked at his urban development plan. We looked at his legacy, his religious legacy, where the liturgy was inst- uh, implemented there at the temple. But the last uh, here has to do with the idea of international trade. So reading the verses, it says, When Solomon went to Ezion Geber and Eloth on the shore of the sea in the land of Edom, and Hiram sent to him by the hand of his servant ships and servants familiar with the sea, and they went to Ophir together with the servants of Solomon, and they brought from there 450 talents of gold, and they brought it to King Solomon. Now we know from non-biblical writing, uh, writings of history, Josephus, other places like that, uh, who is sort of a Jewish historian, we know that at this period in Jewish history, that the children of Israel, as many of the nations were, were petrified by the open sea. So the Sea of Galilee, that's one thing. I can see across, you know, and I see the other... uh, area of land that is over there, no big deal. But the open sea and the ocean, and how far does that go? Well, the children of Israel, uh, amongst others, people of that day, they were fearful of it. But Solomon wasn't fearful of it. He knew, you're not going to fall off the edge of it or something like that. Somehow he knew as the wisest man on the earth. And so he then undertakes this idea. He joins up with this guy Hiram again, and they form this merchant navy, this traveling business group of uh, merchants on the sea, that would begin to trade with nations and kingdoms all over the world. One is specifically listed there. It's this place that is called Ophir. Ophir is believed by scholars to be the land of India today. And so if you remember your map from junior high geography class, you know that Israel is there north of Africa on sort of the coast of the Mediterranean. And so these folks, in order to trade, if this is indeed India, to trade with them, they'd have to make their way all the way across northern Africa there on the Mediterranean, down south the Atlantic Ocean, up around uh, South Africa, and then make their way through the Indian Ocean to India. You're talking about a 3,000-mile sea journey that Solomon made, sort of, this is what we do. Normal, you know, take your, I can't think of the expression, something with your hat, uh, anyhow. But just sort of this normal thing that happens every day. You go and, you know, you, you trade uh, with the people of India from a far-off land here. He instituted this idea. It's it's an amazing accomplishment as well. So chapter 8 has to do with these great accomplishments. Now, we're not going to dig into all of chapter 9 right now, really any of chapter 9, but if you have your Bible, you can look at verse 1. It just says, Now when the Queen of Sheba, and it speaks of her. Jesus references this queen in the New Testament. And so we're going to spend a lot of time next week Uh, considering it, uh, we were going to continue on from here, but we'll stop here. But just one thing to say, what Jesus says about her is that she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of this man Solomon. From the ends of the earth. Now, we don't know where she's from. Some people say Ethiopia, a thousand miles away or so. Other people say from southern Arabia, which was quite a distance, um, even from the nation of Israel. She came a long distance seeking out the wisdom that Solomon had to provide. And, you know, I'm reminded of that scripture in Jeremiah. It says, when you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And that's the point of what Jesus is bringing up in that passage, that there were people that came before him that weren't willing to do any work to find Jesus. They didn't want to dig deeper. They didn't want to go any further. And he said, you know what? There's going to come a day when you stand at the judgment And the Queen of Sheba, now this is metaphorically, but the Queen of Sheba is going to come and she's going to say, shame on you. I traveled a thousand miles seeking out wisdom. You had it right in front of you, but you wouldn't open your eyes to receive it. And so he commends this Queen of Sheba. And you know, I love that song that we sang earlier, the more I seek you, the more I find you. You see, all of us can begin a relationship with the Lord and it can be right here. 
And it could be a surface, surface relationship with the Lord. And the Lord loves you and you love him, and it's right here. But the more you dig, and the deeper you go, and the harder you seek, and the more you want to know the Lord, the more you'll find him. And the more I'll find him. And again, in my life, you know, I've been trying to do that. But if I stop today, I just sort of gradually rise back up to that surface. The more I seek you, the more I find you. The Queen of Sheba, she's a reference. We'll talk about her more next week. Go ahead, please, and read 1 Chronicles 9 as your homework. Read chapter 10 in case we get to that as well. Why don't we pray? We'll bring the worship team up. We'll finish with another worship song. Father, we thank you for the example of the Queen of Sheba, this Queen of the South who uh, made her way to seek out the wisdom of Solomon. And Lord, how easy it could be for us to seek you out, and yet we... Oftentimes, we're not interested, we're too busy, there's other things that we think are more pleasant or enjoyable, and we miss those opportunities to go deeper with you and discover all that you are and what you want to do in our lives and how you want to reveal yourself to us in new and fresh ways. And Father, the heart of our message today, what are we doing with sin? Are we playing with it? Are we giving it uh, provision, so to speak, that it might live and thrive? Are we opening the door so that it might take over and become the master of our homes? Or Lord, are we serious about putting away our sin and crucifying it, the desires of our flesh, and living by the Spirit? Father, we ask that your word would come and be planted within our hearts. And so now, Lord, we ask that you would do that. And even as we finish up in worship, as we make our way out of this facility today, Lord, that your truth would continue to resonate within our hearts. And Father, we would finally just say, yes, Lord. I submit unto you. Cleanse me and clean me out from in the deepest recesses of who I am, that you might be honored and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name.